Good morning, happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. Okay, very solid Monday. Sun is out, it's gonna get warm. Business is looking good. Things are coming back slowly, so that's exciting too. So let's dig in to a Q&A. So we're gonna talk about breathing, which is a shocker and a surprise, right? Which, I don't know, breathing's become kind of popular for some reason. But I think a lot of the information is getting misinterpreted. And so, so let's try to clarify a few things by playing off of a question that I got from Adam. And Adam wants to know if his abdominal muscle should be contracted or completely relaxed at rest. So this gives us an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about what's really happening during resting breathing and then how we're going to apply this um, in certain types of exercises when we're trying to restore movement capabilities or when we're trying to uh, reinforce per performance. So under resting circumstances, you probably shouldn't have to think about your breathing very much. Um, at least I would hope that you wouldn't. Um, in, in most cases of resting breathing, the, the inhalation has some measure of effort associated with it. It's primarily the diaphragm that's, that's creating the negative pressure inside the body that allows you to breathe in. And then it's an elastic recoil of the, of the thorax. The lung tissue actually recoils. You have the eccentric orientation of, of, the, of the diaphragm creating a, uh, a positive pressure and then you exhale. So there's a slight little tweak of abdominal activity at the end of an exhalation that's, that's almost non-existent. In fact, for a long time they said that there wasn't any. And then there's a little bit of research that says that there is. Um, but, but point being is that most of our resting breathing should be relaxed and comfortable and not require any thought. Now, when I start talking about the two archetypes, when I start talking about wide ISAs and narrow ISAs and classifying them in regards to their, their tendencies, we started to talk about using different ways of breathing to reinforce uh, a, a change to, to get someone to the opposite end of, of this, uh, the, it appears to be this dichotomy of inhalation, exhalation. They're actually occurring at the same time. So it's not really a, a true dichotomy. But because the diaphragm does not descend uniformly in the two archetypes, it requires that there's two different types of breathing when we're trying to restore movement capability. So with the narrow ISAs, because of the way that they trap air in the thorax, if we use a high pressure strategy, all we do is reinforce the compensatory strategy. We continue to trap air and we don't make the changes that we've been attempting to change. And, and so we would use a more relaxed mouth, sort of, we always describe it as like fogging up a window, fogging up a mirror type of breathing, because if we can slow down the exhalation, we actually uh, provide time to clear the air that would normally get trapped during the compensatory strategy that a narrow ISA would use. With a wide ISA, we tend to use a little bit more forceful exhalation because what we have to do is we have to, we have to close, we have to close the, the, the wide ISA. And the way we do that is using superficial musculature like external oblique, which would then narrow that angle. So that actually does require a little bit more of an effortful exhalation. But here's the problem that, that people are running into, especially with the wide ISA archetypes, is that they're using high levels of muscle activity during the, the, the breathing activities and they're using a more forceful exhalation. 
The problem that you run into with that is I've already got somebody that's utilizing a very, very strong exhalation, concentric orientation type of strategy. And then all you're doing is reinforcing that during the activities that you're attempting to use to restore movement capabilities. So what you end up doing is you just reinforce the strategy because by driving the exhalation too aggressively, they recruit their superficial strategy just like they're doing under most circumstances and then you don't get the changes that you want. And so we have to take the superficial strategies into consideration whenever we're trying to coach somebody through some form of breathing activity, especially when we're trying to restore movement. Um, so under those circumstances, we actually use a very relaxed, casual type of breathing with very slow, methodical movements. Um, very, very low tension, very, very low effort. And because again, if we have this really, really strong, wide ISA, superficial, concentric orientation, you're never gonna get your way out of that by trying to, to use more effort. Because again, you just reinforce the strategy. So again, I would caution you against um, thinking that there's only a way or there's only two ways. What we have to do is we have to consider what this person that we're working with is, is bringing to us. And then we have to reason our way through the, the, the strategies to alleviate whatever we're trying to change or reinforce what we're trying to reinforce. So from a performance standpoint, if I do have somebody that, that has to drive a lot of high force, then I do want to use a concentric strategy. I do want to use this aggressive exhalation. So always taking the individual into consideration is where we go. It's always N equals one. It's always in a gray. Everybody wants a black and white answer when it comes to all, all of these, these concerns. But the reality is that we have to adapt our treatment strategy or training strategy to the individual. So it's not as black and white as everybody makes it seem to be. Um, so please, please, please take that into consideration. So thank you, Adam, for your question. Everybody have a great Monday and I will see you tomorrow. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. So I'm cleaning out old emails. Came across one in the Q&A that I totally spaced the first time through. So I apologize. I'm gonna to apologize to Matt. Matt had a question about knee valgus. And, and so I, I, I wanted to talk about this because it, there's a lot of details that I think that get either misunderstood or glossed over or looking at the relationships. And so we're gonna kind of take this apart just a little bit. So Matt says, I know you have to work on knee valgus in athletes. And he wants to know to what degree is it not something to worry about because it potentially helps produce power um, I'm wondering where I could find more info. So here's your info. So let's talk about, about what this is. So, so knee valgus is, is this thing that some people refer to as knock knees, or they'll say it's a frontal plane position of the knee. So it's, it's, it looks like it's in the imaginary frontal plane, but it's really not. It's actually a twist in the knee. So if I grab my knee real quick. So what we're talking about is that twist right there. So we got a femur that's that would be relatively internally rotated and a tibia that's relatively externally rotated. So I got that, and so we got a little bit of, a, of an angle that gets produced there, and like I said, people think it's in the imaginary foam plane, but it's, it's all transverse plane. So it's a twist. Now, let's talk about why this occurs in the first place. So it is not, it is not 
tight adductors. Yes, the adductors are probably going to be active under these circumstances, but they're not tight. They're active for a reason. They're active by position. And so what we have to talk about now are some of the internal physics. So in most cases, I'm not going to say in every case, but in most cases, when you see a valgus knee, you're going to see a pelvis that's just a little bit wider than the thorax. And so what this does is it creates some internal forces that actually drive you harder into the ground. So, so your internal, internal mass is actually accelerating at, at a higher, or it's not accelerating at a higher velocity, it's just moving at a higher velocity um, towards the ground. And so what this does is it shifts the center of mass of your body towards the medial aspect and forward. And so what this does is it then it's going to position the foot into a certain position so that so the calcaneus so the sesentacum tali doesn't come back up as it as the foot tries to resupinate so because it pushes you medially and forward you end up with a foot that is in a later propulsive position from the get-go. So what this does is it lowers the arch, it accelerates the rate at which the tibia moves over the foot, and then you have an anterior orientation of the pelvis. Now, if you have a wide infrasternal angle and you have this conical shape to, to your, your thorax relative to the pelvis, then you're also going to be standing in, in an antiverted position of the hip, which will actually uh, allow this to occur a little bit easier than if you were say a narrow but the narrows will, will will experience some valgus orientation as well they tend to have that show up a little bit more towards the performance end of the spectrum versus just just standing around but the thing I want you to recognize is that under both circumstances whether I'm landing a jump as a narrow and the knees come together or as I'm standing if I'm if I'm a wide ISA or if I'm a larger body size and I'm standing in, in this valgus orientation your center of mass is medial and forward. And what that does is it quickly maxes out how much dorsiflexion that you're actually gonna have. So you'll have overactivity of the, of the, the posterior compartment of the lower leg. It's gonna limit dorsiflexion and then the, the valgus is going to occur under those circumstances. So, so this is a gravitational challenge all day, every day, through and through. It's a rotation that occurs and it's pushing you forward. So the, the goal of all rehab and training is to make sure that you can manage this this uh, this anteriorly driven or medially driven center of mass. So we got to get you from this later propulsive type of a foot and later propulsive strategy and we got to move you back towards an early propulsion. So when we're talking about from a rehab standpoint um, this is where we're going to probably talk to somebody about, about some shoe orientation that's going to help position the foot into an earlier phase of propulsion. So if I have a calcaneus that's getting driven medially, um, then I need a, a, a shoe that's going to help reorient the, the, the calcaneus, so give, give it some feedback. So this is where the heel counters in shoes make a difference. This is where a little bit of heel of elevation relative to the toe makes a huge difference because that's going to help the foot achieve its early propulsive position. So a running style shoe with a really rigid heel counter really, really comes into play here. Um, as far as activities are concerned, because gravity is not your friend under these circumstances, we're going to take gravity out of the equation at least initially. We're going to do a lot of sideline activities because Chances are you've got an anterior and a posterior compression in the pelvis and in the thorax. If we lay on your side, we're going to get some of that AP expansion. And then we're going to move you towards inverted position. So if I'm a wide ISA, I'm going to be supine and inverted. If I'm a narrow ISA, I'm going to be prone and inverted. Um, if I have a larger body size 
or um, formerly pregnant females, um, they will have a yielding strategy in the pelvis, in the upper, especially the upper part of the pelvis. So under those circumstances, this is where SI belts come in really, really handy to help them learn how to manage and control that yielding strategy until they can have the, the, the muscle activity um, that, will, that will eventually assist them and control that. Uh, I'm gonna work towards half kneeling, eventually towards split stance to gain the tibial control through uh, some of the posterior musculature like hamstrings. So hamstrings are like reins on a horse controlling the tibia. So when I can finally get you into those half kneeling or split stance positions, that's where we're gonna gain a lot of that control. As we move out into the gym and we start talking about training strategies, these are where you're gonna use unweighting strategies. So remember, this is a gravitational problem, right? So they're getting pushed down, their internal physics are pushing them down. So we're gonna use unweighting strategies like reverse band squats, um, jumps with, with, the, with the band to actually lighten them. Chopping activities um, will become more important than lifting activities. So when we're talking about like cable activities, so we're talking about cable chops, because the cable chop actually unweights them as they're performing the, the, the trunk and hip activities. So those become much more valuable. Later on, once they learn how to control their center of mass more effectively, now we can move into, into uh, lifting activities and then progressive loading. So, so again, start with unloading strategies in the gym. If we're talking about box squatting, because I love box squatting under these circumstances, your narrow ISAs that are, that are um, landing with the valgus orientations, you're gonna start them with a high box position because they have to learn how to control their pelvic diaphragm because that's what's accelerating them um, towards the ground. With your wide ISA people, again, you're probably gonna use some form of belting strategy. So even a weightlifting belt, SI belts, etc., to reduce the yielding strategy as they unload their weight onto the box because if they're a wide ISA, we've gotta get the eccentric orientation of that pelvic diaphragm back, but we don't want the pelvis to yield, so we have to create this, this external compressive force to help them manage that. Once again, we're gonna to try to move them towards half kneeling and split stance activities so they learn how to control the foot position and then knee position. So we've got a lot of influences here when we're talking about, about knee valgus, but understand what it is. It's, it's a gravitational problem that's associated with the idiosyncratic physics of the individual. So it's not about tight muscles, it's not necessarily about weakness, it's literally about controlling the center of mass and the position. So Matt, I hope that gives you a, a little taste of, of, of what you're up against when you're talking about dealing with knee valgus. If you have any more questions or concerns, please let me know. Go to askbillhartman at gmail.com and we'll try to get your question on here and I'll see you guys tomorrow. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. I got a really interesting Q&A that came through um, that I wanted to, to, to hit on today. It's a little different from what we would typically talk about. A lot of times we're talking about restoration of ranges of motion and, and restoring health and, and movement and such. But um, I got a question um, from, I think it's, it's either Rena Arena, I apologize, R-E-N-A. And it's a powerlifting question about actually increasing the arch in a bench press and how it relates to, to some structural things. And so this is going to be a little bit different than, than, than what we talk about because we're going to intentionally move you in a direction that we typically don't really want to, to uh, position people. But this is going to be performance related 
uh, Q&A. So let's dig into this thing. Um, so, so Renna says, uh, this is more of a powerlifting related question. What strategies, both breathing and postural, can those with narrow and wide ISAs use to maximize thoracic extension in the bench press as it relates to the rib cage? This is mostly regarding the setup to execute the lift. Any info on the role of ISAs in proper bench press execution would be much appreciated, actually. Okay, so now we get to, to take this concept and what we're gonna do is we're gonna physically shape somebody into a position that's going to increase bench press performance. So let's talk about powerlifting in general, first and foremost. So powerlifting is about force production under very, very heavy loads. There's no time constraint, essentially, um, like we would see like with the Olympic weightlifting it has a time constraint because of the, the technique that has to be used. So if you can grind out a, a bench press in 10 seconds, so be it. Um, as long as you complete the lift, that's all that matters. Very, very strong, strong, strong exhalation strategies. Very, very high levels of concentric orientation. So we want to minimize eccentric orientation as much as possible, only enough to allow sufficient movement to be accessible to execute the lift. So high levels of range of motion actually can be detrimental under these circumstances. So if we can steal some, some range of motion, it actually allows us uh, greater efficiency. We can, we can put more effort into the lift itself and stay in a groove. Um, because again, if we, if we uh, create a situation that physically limits our range of motion, then all that energy that we would normally have to use to control the position, we don't have to worry about. Now there's secondary consequences, which we'll talk about, but, but, but for right now, let's talk performance. So what we want to do, regardless of your, of your physical structure, so we talk about narrows and wides, what we want to do is create as much anterior posterior compression as possible because the stronger the exhalation strategy, the greater the force output into the extremities and then the more weight that I can lift. Now there's a subtle difference between wides and narrows. So with the wides, you're going to want to emphasize uh, the latissimus dorsi element of, of this, this posterior compression. So we're talking about below the level of T8. So we're talking about bilateral symmetrical lifts like barbell rows and lat pull downs being staples for, for the wide ISAs because what we want to do is we want to create as much compression on the posterior aspect of that rib cage. Because the advantage that the wide ISAs have is the, the angles at which the, the musculature associated with their, with their uh, skeleton, like their, their rib cage and their pelvis, is generally more horizontal. Tremendous advantage for, for force output in things like a bench press or a squat or a deadlift. So if we can compress that lower posterior part of, of the rib cage, you immediately increase your arch, you immediately increase your compressive strategy, you immediately increase the amount of weight that you can, that you can lift. With a narrow, they tend to have greater expansion in the upper back compared to the wides. And so what we wanna do is we wanna emphasize more of the upper back type of, of compressive strategies that you would see associated with bilateral symmetrical face pulls, I's, T's, and Y's. Okay, so there's the subtle difference now. They'll still do lat pull downs and they'll still do um, their rowing in a bilateral symmetrical manner, but we're talking about emphasis as far as the subtleties between, between structures. Um, the wides are also going to probably benefit a lot more from, from doing the, uh, the back extension type of things or, or reverse hypers because what they have to do to actually maximize their arching capabilities in the bench press but also to carry over to the other lifts is they have to close the lower posterior aspect of the pelvis as well, just like the lower posterior rib cage. On the, on the narrow side of things, 
Um, they're going to want to do things that are more associated with like a glute bridge or the, the barbell hip thrusting thing because what that does is it, is it compresses the backside of the pelvis. So we get a pelvis that, that instead of being nice and round like this, we want to flatten it out as much as possible. So your, your glute bridges and, and hip thrusts with your knees up, um, apart um, will actually help compress that strategy right there. And now you, you've got compression where you typically would have expansion in a narrow. And, and so again, the goal here is to maximize the performance regardless of health, increase the arching capabilities in a bench press. Now, let's state the obvious. Don't forget to bench press um, because you gotta practice the position because it's very, very specific. And so all you have to do is get on YouTube, watch a bunch of videos about it, and you'll see a, a bunch of high-level powerlifters getting into the position, practice, practice, practice. The better you get at that, the more compressive strategy that you're gonna get. The bench press itself is a compressive exercise. So let's not ignore the specificity. Um, in regards to some of your other training, the sumo pulls, um, Cross bench pullovers, a good old classic. So drop your hips below the level of the bench, arch backwards over the bench and perform your pullovers. Another great compressive exercise. Now, secondary consequences. Here's the bad stuff. You're gonna lose range of motion, okay? Now, on, on a certain level, that's performance enhancing. Like I said, it's gonna keep you in your groove, it's gonna improve your efficiency in the, in the big lifts, but the secondary consequences of losing that range of motion is you're gonna create a bunch of compressive strategies. So you're more likely to see a bunch of soft tissue injuries because the concentric orientation associated with the, the compressive strategies will reduce blood flow to key areas like connective tissues and bone and things like that. And so that's why you're gonna see a lot of the soft tissue injuries that you see in, in powerlifters. That's why you're gonna see the, the progressive arthritic conditions in, in powerlifters. So the thing that I want you to understand is, yes, I'm talking about performance. Yes, I'm intentionally compressing you. And yes, you're gonna increase your powerlifting performance, but there is going to be consequences that are going to compromise your health in the long term. So please keep those in mind. You get to be an adult, you get to make all of your own decisions here. But the reality is, is that the harder you drive yourself into these positions, the more likely you are to experience the negative secondary consequences associated with high levels of concentric orientation over prolonged periods of time and exhalation strategies, which could compromise who knows how many different levels of health. Rena, I hope that answers your question for you. It gives you a lot to think about, um, make good decisions, and I will see you guys to, oh, coaches and, and coffee uh, tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, 6 a.m. Don't forget that. And I will see you guys tomorrow. It is Thursday. This is the 6 a.m. coffee and coaches conference call. I have neuro coffee in hand and Dr. Mike, it is, it is perfect. And it, it is so good today. Um, this has just been something of interest lately. Uh -huh. Exercise protocols for reducing blood pressure. Mm. I don't know if there's such a thing per se. Okay. But this brings up a really interesting point as to what high blood pressure really is. Okay. Let me hear what you have to say about it. Okay. So if we think about if we think about the circulation having two sides, right? You have the output side and the input side, okay? To make it simple. All of the, all of the fluid shifting that goes on 
um, that's associated with circulation is based on, on gradients. It's like, just like we talk about with range of motion and things like that when we talk about gradients of pressure and volume. So on the, on the front side, so as the blood leaves the heart, um, the gradients are such that, it, that, it, the, that the fluid shift is away from circulation. So it's moving stuff into the cells. On the back side, the byproducts of cellular metabolism are coming back into circulation. So any ions, you know, hydrogen ions, chloride, et cetera, et cetera, increases the concentration of the, of the, of the blood flow coming back into the heart, okay? And then that increases the fluid volume coming back into the heart. The larger the, the, the ion concentration, the more fluid that comes back towards the heart, right? So that means I have more fluid coming back into the heart. So what the heart does is it doesn't actually create the pressure that manages the flow of blood because blood flows all by itself, okay? What the heart does is make sure that the, that the flow uh, gets vortexed. So the heart actually spins, it doesn't pump. It spins blood to make sure that it, it's a non-turbulent flow that enters and leaves the heart. So uh, if you're deconditioned, as it were, as, as the people with, that tend to get high blood pressure are, um, they, uh, they will produce more ions. They will have a larger volume of, of fluid returning to the heart that the heart has to manage. And so that's why you're gonna see like higher resting heart rates with people that are, that are deconditioned. But you'll also see higher pressures because it's a back pressure coming from the backside. So, so the, the fluid that's going back to the heart after cellular metabolism creates the, the resistance, if it were, okay? Um, and so that's my spiel. And so if you become more uh, aerobically conditioned, you don't produce the strong ion concentration that's associated with cellular metabolism like people that are, con are deconditioned and therefore you have a, a, a greater likelihood of lower blood, blood pressure. Now, having said all that, I'm sure there are things that I don't understand, that I don't know, that can actually increase blood pressure. But when we're talking about the conditioning effect, um, that's where my head would be. Well, what's your angle? Because let, let's talk about it because it, it might be useful. No, I think so. I think that's actually, I've never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is interesting. Mm -hmm. When I think, so I think the, what's got me thinking about this lately is there was a, a new uh, research paper from this study called the Mesa study, which is like essentially just a modern day, large population health um, study. Um, like in America, the classic one was the Framingham Heart Study. Uh-huh, the, the really long one. Study. Yeah. yeah, this is like a newer version of that, okay. essentially. And what they showed was that, which is, this is also, I think, interesting commentary, even from a fitness perspective, is that blood pressure levels have basically been set based on unhealthy people, uh, right? Mm -hmm. So what we would consider healthy blood pressure is just where we took, here's where the population is, here's kind of pathology, so let's be here. Not necessarily 
that 120 over 80 is good, right? right? It's like it, from like a if you think of like BMI, right? Yeah. It's not that like BMI that 25 is good. It's just like not overweight, which is you know like being not hypertensive is not necessarily good. It's just not hypertensive. Right. And um, so there was an editorial that went along with this new paper. And in it, they were talking about that and really how we didn't start appreciating um, how early negative cardiovascular effects start taking effect until the Korean War, when unfortunately they had all these young people dying, but then right. they were able to look at their arteries. Right. And they were like, all these young, healthy, you know, soldiers had all this atherosclerosis that had started. And um, so long story short, the Mesa, this new uh, paper from the Mesa study is really suggesting that 100 is more of the healthy level for systolic blood pressure. Oh, wow. And that beyond 100, you start getting stepwise increases in risk of cardiovascular disease. No kidding. Right? Which is like, how many people do you know that have a blood pressure of 100? Like my mother. Zero. Yeah, yeah, I think my mother too, <laughs> actually. Um, and she's always been told she's hypotensive. And uh, seriously, she, she has been too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, I don't, you know, I, I think that if you look at then all these, so it, it, for me, it was just a couple of interesting questions. So like my blood pressure is like, my systolic blood pressure is like 110, 114, which I would generally have considered good. And now I'm like, hmm, maybe it's not so good. And so then I'm thinking all the levers that you can pull to lower blood pressure, exercise being one of them from an ability to the not Bill Hartman version, pump blood, more blood per stroke, right? Also create more elastic vasculature would be kind of the other piece. Sure. Um, and, you know, then there kind of some nutrition, some different nutrition things. But, um, you know, I think unfortunately exercise is like complicated to study because you start dealing with population, yeah. intensity, duration, mode, you know, all those different variables. And then all of a sudden it's like, how could you even figure something out to right. say, here's a good prescriptive approach? The, the, every, the sequence of events that, that resulted in that, okay, is not what the surgery addresses. It addresses the structure and nothing else. Right. You know, and then, and then we have to rely on on the rehabilitative process after the fact, you know, we're not just reconditioning people um, in these post-surgical uh, scenarios, right? Right. We have to, you know, recapture their ability to manage themselves in space. And if you don't do that, then whatever was causing the problem in the first place can still be there. Because uh, we did a, a few tricks with her and her R turned into 10 degrees of tibial IR after we messed around with it. Yeah, right, exactly. And it's like, okay, so she's changeable. So what? So what's the limiting factor? So we're going to see her next week and we're going to spend a couple hours with her actually next week. So I might have something really cool to report um, on the next call. At least I hope I do because I'm fascinated by this one. Yeah. You know, these are the people that, that you really, really, really want to help. A lot. Right, right. Like she's been trying to get help for years and years and years right. and can't. Right. Yeah. yeah so, so um, you know, it'll be interesting to hear what you have to say about this too. Um, after you actually get to, to evaluate. What 
what interventions i'm curious what interventions did you use to i had a cough. restore you had her what i had her cough you had her exhale no i had her cough that is what do you mean by that intervention. just cough for me for a second okay so yes actually no so i have i have them i have them in a certain position and then when they coughed a couple of cool things happen and and what it does is it is it reduces some of the some of the positional constraints and then it restores some motion where i need it right um and i, I got a bunch of tricks like that um and and that's what the, that's what i would consider them i consider them tricks it's like it's it's sort of like creating a window of opportunity so you know it's like sometimes you can do a manip and you and and now you've got motion where you didn't have motion before and now you can access right. that and then they can teach you something so i had i had like 10 minutes to look at this person mm -hmm. and so i had to do something really fast and dirty and and so i do a little trick and then um um and but it did like instantly restore um a lot of motion where i didn't think i was going to get any and and so then right away like the light bulb goes off so, okay we got something that we can work with here actually that, that brings up a pretty decent question and i think it's it's been floated around but just considerations for kids when they come back um you know i i think most of us have our answers and stuff and but you know what what are things that i guess that maybe i'm not thinking about uh in terms of just return returning back to to training and kind of getting things back into order. I mean, because we're, we're starting to see some, which is crazy in the South, where I think we've seen a couple already where, you know, kids are back with their certified coaches. And, you know, I think one I thought I saw on Twitterverse, they, they threw them through a, a Murph workout and this was a football team. I think I saw a death already in, in Georgia. Um, you know, it's, it's like one of these things where I think we're having the discussion and a lot more people are aware, but we still have coaches out there that are just, you know, they're, they're trying to make their point and they're trying to put them through things where they shouldn't be going through. So, you know, what I would do is I would just have a game. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, I would just like just two weeks of play. You know, nothing, nothing terribly structured. Pick sides, pick a game. Play some ultimate and throw the football around shoot the basketball. I mean, seriously, I would just get them used to being, you know, in an interactive environment. Like I said, a little bit of structure, but mostly just fun. Before you try to get too structured and organized, because everybody wants to get everybody thinks that, that this time that they're under a time constraint that that and if they don't push it hard and fast now, they're going to just destroy or, or they're going to fail. And the reality is, it's like, we got time, you know, and they're kids. So let's, let's not forget that part. Does she have access to movement at each segment under any circumstance? So non-weight bearing, take gravity out of the equation. Yeah. And she recaptured those things, right? I don't think I would be train her, training her in a weight bearing situation yet. Okay. Yeah. Can she walk in a pool? So, so that reduces gravity that might actually help her restore some of her segmental movement with, with her foot on the ground, as it were, at the bottom of the pool, right? So you unweight her and see how that goes. So that gives her an opportunity to start moving segmentally, right? You make sure that she can restore those things, and then you make sure that she can restore her ability to turn. 
but but your so your chessboard is gonna the, the, the tell of your chessboard is gonna say where is she not turning, right? Where does she not have it? And then that's where you gotta go. But if it's too painful to do through her hips, do it through her thorax. Because maybe you get it, you, you can drive it down from the thorax. That's the nice thing about the thorax and the pelvis being the same, is that because they both behave the same um, in, in most circumstances, right, of performance, so walking, such, like that, um, <clears throat> you can utilize those influences to help you capture motion elsewhere. Good morning, happy Friday. I have my neural coffee in hand. Mm. And it is perfect. So real quick, had a change in schedule this morning. So literally just got done with my, with my walk and I usually do it after I do this kind of stuff. So I'm a little cranked up. It's my second cup of neural coffee. So who knows what's gonna happen this morning, but um, I got two questions that came through Q&A that are somewhat related, both, both involving neck stuff, and it's neck performance related, so this is kind of exciting too. So we get to talk about some cool stuff like MMA and bench pressing and things like that. So um, if that's of your interest, then, then stay put and, and give this a listen. So uh, the first question is gonna come from Vikram. So Vikram says, can you explain why some people go into what looks like cervical flexion at the bottom of a bench press? Yes, I can. And it actually is flexion to a degree. So let's talk about this for a second. So go back and watch <clears throat> the, uh, the arching video that we did on the bench press earlier this week, and you'll get kind of the same representation in the neck. So when we're talking about bench pressing, powerlifting, etc., we don't want any turning. We want high compressive strategies. We want lots of concentric orientation on the outside squeezing in. So in a bench press, the way that most people are going to try to stabilize their neck and their head against the bench is they're gonna create an, an upper cervical flexion, if you will. Okay, so it's a rotation of the of the cranium of your skull on top of C1. What that does is it pulls the hyoid bone upwards as if you were swallowing. The great thing about that is, is it takes your airway, which is normally kind of roundish, and it compresses it into a flattened state, just like when you're flattening the rib cage with your pecs and your upper back and your lats and things to create this strong exhalation compressive strategy for strength purposes. And so now we've got a very, very stable neck. As people lower the bar to, the, to, to their chest, they, they maintain this position. And so just like kind of doing a sit up for your neck, the musculature on the front side that is pulling the hyoid bone up and compressing your airway and making your neck go from a, a cylinder to, to this compressed sort of wide looking neck will actually lift the head up. And so you'll see people that have never done breathing activities before or reaching activities and you'll see a tremendous amount of this sort of rectus abdominis effort as they try to use it as an, as an exhalation strategy. You're seeing the exact same thing in a bench press. And so again, from a performance standpoint, it creates high levels of compression. It prevents air from escaping the body. So now you're squeezing this compressed air and, and, it, and it contributes to force output. So if bench pressing is your thing and you wanna maximize that, then you better be able to compress your neck. Now, Secondary consequences, always secondary consequences is something that seems good. 
you're gonna lose lower cervical rotation, you're gonna lose dorsal rostral expansion, which is going to affect your ability to move your shoulders and your lower cervical spine. You may also create eccentric orientation in the suboccipital area, so now you're gonna get a little bit of extra upper cervical rotation as a compensatory strategy. And again, if you're willing to live with that, if, that, if you're okay with that, you're the adult, you get to make that choice. So again, what you're looking at at Vikram is a performance-related um, strategy to allow them to lift more weight. And so again, is there anything wrong with it? I don't think there's anything wrong with it if performance is the goal, but understand the secondary consequences. Now, second question on the neck. So Connor wants to know, he says, he says hi Bill, hope, hope Hopefully I have an interesting question for you. I have an athlete that wants to train their neck because they're a combat athlete. Love that. Um, I was curious what your thoughts are on neck training and how did you go about it? For wider and narrow ISA, they're fairly well progressed in their program, feeling great, but have had issues with neck tension in the past. Okay, so we'll take the same concept that we talked about with Vikram. So, so anytime you're trying to increase neck strength or force output or however you want to term that, you're gonna have the same kind of consequences that we talked about in the bench press because you're gonna to start to utilize superficial strategies. You're gonna to start to compress upper dorsal rostral areas. So that upper trapezius, the guys with the, with the big thick necks and, and or the no neck look with the big traps, um, very beneficial from a force output standpoint, not great for, for movement. So now let's think about this as applied to a combat athlete. If you are a, a, a striker, all right, and I don't have lower cervical uh, rotation and I get tapped in the chin and my head accelerates in rotation. If I can't turn my lower cervical spine, I am dependent on my upper cervical spine to dampen that force. Otherwise my brain's gonna get scrambled and I'm gonna get KO'd, right? So if I have enough rotation and if I can absorb that and dampen that force and it doesn't jiggle my brain around too much, then I'm gonna be okay. However, if I have a, a really strong, forceful lower cervical um, neck musculature that is compressing and limiting my ability to turn, and I need, to, I need to be able to dampen that force, I may not be able to do that. Now you've just got, you got tapped in the chin, the jaw's gonna go one way, the head's gonna go the other way, your brain's gonna accelerate, and, and then you're, you're more likely to get, get KO'd. So this brings up a really interesting twist of fate here. So if I'm an MMA fighter, or a boxer, or any other combat athlete with, with striking, I better be able to breathe through my nose. Because you don't, that's why you, you never wanna see a fighter breathing through their mouth, because the jaw is part of the neck, and so if I get hit in the jaw, the head accelerates in the opposite direction. So if my mouth's open, I accelerate this to a much more significant degree, and then I can't dampen the force through my skull or through my jaw in, into my neck and into my torso. So if I can't dampen that, then I have to absorb it all here. Again, you're more likely to get knocked out if you're a mouth breather. So make sure that they can breathe through their nose. And that's, that's kind of a big deal. Another way that the neck gets stabilized under these circumstances is, is the ability to breathe with your mouth closed and keep your tongue approximated to the roof of the mouth because that creates an anchor for all of these muscles in the neck that do provide stability. So if I am a, a grappler style fighter and I use my head and my neck for positioning, then I do need to have a high force output in, in my neck. I need to have those capabilities um, from a performance standpoint. And, and so again, better be a good nose breather better be able to, to breathe with my tongue on the roof of my mouth, and I do need some element of, of, of that, that cervical um, strength or force output so I can position and resist the, the forces that are being applied to it. So we gotta find this sweet spot between force output and, and, and losses of range of motion. So a great way to do this 
is with loaded carries. Um, a lot of your pressing activities are going to provide you an element of this. So as far as like isolative neck training, I don't think you need to do a lot of it other than from a performance related standpoint. And so, so this is something that you would build into training for say an MMA fighter, a boxer, etc. is that, okay, um, one of the things that I'll steal from Alan Cosgrove that, and this was for like 100 million years ago, is that he would train with his mouth guard in and his mouth closed to train this, this, this nasal breathing under duress. And so I think that's a great strategy. So you may want to start to implement that as part of your, your strength and conditioning program. So put the mouth guard in. If they're doing prowler pushes, loaded carries, rope pulls, all of those things that are, that are going to produce rotational force outputs. Um, I, I think that that that's going to be the type of neck training that you want to do rather than this this isolative thing like oh we gotta we gotta load the neck directly kind of a stuff because i think you're gonna get a ton of that during during training so that's how i would approach it uh connor um i hope that's useful for you just remember guys that that you know yeah you need force output yeah you might need a little hypertrophy but but there's secondary consequences that as long as you understand the secondary consequences you're making good decisions then, then move forward. Follow your key performance indicators. Oh, here's a quick thought for MMA guys. If you lose your ability to turn your neck, think about getting trapped in a rear naked choke. Rear naked choke defense is turn into the choke. If you can't turn your neck, you're out cold. So a quick thought on that. Um, again, I'm a little, a little hyped up, a little too much caffeine and a little bit of aerobic activity and here you go. So this is what you get. Have a great Friday. I hope everybody has a terrific weekend and I will see you next week.